I want you to describe this bridge. Like, what do you see and how does it make you feel? It's just a normal bridge. It's got much wider pedestrian pathways than other ones that I've been on. There's no suspension or anything. It's just a bridge. It makes me feel plain. Like you could commute across it. Yeah, like I could walk right. across it we're easily. Gonna, we're going to actually walk a little bit out across it. Okay. All right. Look, now. caramelized peanuts. Those are good. That yeah. is my fiance, Carolyn. As of very recently, we live in London. And she's crossing the Thames from Suffolk into the city of London for the very first time. And what I'm trying to do is point out to her the, the discrepancy between the bridge we're currently standing on and... That bridge. that bridge. Oh, that is much more grandeur. <laughs> um, yeah, the, there's turrets on it and nice suspensions. That is what I would imagine the Bridge of London to, to actually look like. London Bridge. Yeah, so what bridge are we on? <laughs> I guess we're on London Bridge. There was a placard that said so. Yeah. <laughs> I had a pretty similar experience when I came down here just last week. I had been primed by Dr. Matthew Green's London Travel Guide Through Time. He talks about London Bridge in all its 17th century glory. I saw London Bridge on the map and I got on the train and I'm like, I'm going to get to London Bridge and this is going to be great. And I walked out onto this bridge and I was like, what is this nonsense? (laughs) It's just a bridge. And it's not like I'd never heard that the bridge next to the Tower of London, the one in all the pictures, wasn't London Bridge. It's Tower Bridge. I had heard that. But, like so many people before me, I walked out onto London Bridge as it exists today, and I went through the five stages of Icon Letdown. Denial. No, this this cannot be right. I must have just walked under the wrong bridge. There are so many bridges. Anger. Why did they name this new bridge London Bridge? Why didn't they just name it something else? Anything else when they built it in the 70s? New London Bridge. Bargaining. I think I'm willing to throw down the 16 pounds for that London Bridge experience just so that I might still get something out of this. Depression. We've lost our connection with our history. Time destroys all. Acceptance. Alright, I mean, this bridge does offer a really nice vantage point of Tower Bridge. Excuse me, would I- <laughs> sorry, would you mind taking a picture of me with Tower Bridge in the background? I'm Charles Gusty, and I'd like to welcome you to Iconography, a new podcast dedicated to the geography of icons, real and imagined. It's a bit history, a bit architecture, a bit literary and cultural analysis, and a lot of nerdery from an enthusiastic amateur, all in the hopes of answering this. How do we understand the places we visit, and even the places we've never been? Well, as a shorthand, we tend to use agreed-upon touchstones. Places, like monuments and gravesites. People, like statesmen and singers. Objects, like food and fashion. And, of course, dreams. Dreamed up people. Mr. Potter. And dreamed up places. Platform nine and three quarters. And dreamed up things. Bertie bought every flavor beans. And those four categories don't remain in their own separate corners. No, they mix into this potent cocktail that gives a place its flavor. The flavor people who go there seek out, and the flavor that people who've never even been there imagine they can taste. It usually takes a few iconic people 
to make a place iconic, right? And to feel closer to iconic people who are long gone, we make pilgrimages to the places that they touched in their lifetimes. And when one of those places doesn't feel iconic enough, we might use the food and clothes of their time period to give it some authentic punch. Now, isn't that a bit of a, well, of fantasy? Yeah, sure, but there's a bit of myth-making to every icon. Maybe the most enduring icons of all were never real to begin with. They came from books and plays and movies, shows and paintings. Now, before we get too far into the weeds there, let's use our first icon as an example. London Bridge is real. You can walk across it today. But what ties this physical structure to the imagined icon, the idea of London Bridge? It's tenuous at best. When she opened the bridge in 1973, the Queen did give it the old college try. London Bridge may not be the longest, the tallest, or the widest bridge in the world, but I believe, as you do, that it is the most famous. It has played a vital part in the history and prosperity of this city, and like other great institutions, has passed into the folklore of the country. But which bridge is she talking about there? Is she talking about the flat, three-arched concrete bridge that she just cut the ribbon on, which surely was not the most famous bridge in the world at that time, seeing as it hadn't even opened yet? Or is she talking about the idea of London Bridge? The folklore. London Bridge is an idea, an idea we have of this unnecessarily grand bridge in London. For many, for all the people who go to Wikipedia and are told right away at the top of the London Bridge page that this is not the page you're looking for, (laughs) that image is of the bridge next door. And even for those in the know, it's the image of London Bridge's past, of the medieval bridge that stood for over 600 years with houses leaning out over the river and a grand octagonal chapel dedicated to a martyred saint in the middle and heads of traders on pikes over the south gate. Or maybe of the 19th century bridge that you can actually walk across today if you go to Arizona. But even more than that, London Bridge is the subject of a song. Actually, it's, it's the subject of a more modern song, too. Though that one's a bit more metaphorical. And you know, watching this video now, I remember why I'm not a total fool for walking out onto what I'm told is London Bridge and, and having the very strange sensation of looking over to the east and seeing what I think should be London Bridge right there upstream. Fergie, she grinds on guards, she flaunts some Union Jack booty shorts at a fancy dinner, and then at the very end of the London Bridge video, she speeds by a bridge in a boat. And that's the same bridge that appears in the London Bridge singles promotional art, Fergie as the Duchess, crowned with a tiara, an opulent bridge in the background. I I bet you can guess which bridge it isn't. But honestly, let's say this wasn't ignorance, this was a, a conscious choice. 
Can you blame her? Let's say, congratulations, you are the lead singer in the world's biggest up-and-coming hip-hop collective. And they're not a punchline yet. And you're getting ready to launch your solo career. Now, you happen to have the same last name and nickname as the Duchess of York, so your obvious theme is probably England. (laughs) Oh, so you want to do a kind of naughty play on the classic nursery rhyme, London Bridge is Falling Down? Good stuff. Now, I need you to look at these two bridges for the promo campaign. One is opulent with grand symmetry. There's two short gates at the extreme ends, two tall towers framing the drawbridge in the middle, and suspension sloping up to this grand pedestrian walkway that looks like royal icing. The other bridge looks like, well, as Carolyn and I put it during our visit. I mean, it's just, it's just cinder block. They really didn't. I mean, they just, they were just like, all right, we've done Not going for anything. Highway overpasses. Yeah, it's just commuter <laughs> traffic. Like, yeah. this could just be the Florida Turnpike. Exactly. So flat, so cinder blocky. In point of fact, there is nothing wrong with that. If every highway overpass looked as grand as Tower Bridge, we would have very unsafe, underfunded roads. A bridge's first responsibility is to safely and efficiently convey people from one side of a river or chasm to the other. By 1968, the 1831 London Bridge, designed by the John Rennies, father and son, just wasn't up to that task anymore. It was sinking into the London clay at a rate of an eighth of an inch per year. And it was cracking. Adam Ferguson in the Illustrated London News, March 1973. They suggested rebuilding it with gravel and stone, iron and steel, silver and gold, and sundry other raw materials, all of them severely deficient in one way or another. Yet in practice, the last gravel and stone London bridge was not washed away as the sole thread it would be. It was simply too small to carry the pedestrian and vehicular traffic expected in the 1970s. And its foundations were inadequate for efficient adaptation to the new requirements. As every schoolboy knows, the old bridge was sold to the Americans and re-erected somewhere in Arizona. And as everyone who habitually approaches the city of London from the south bank of Suffolk knows, they seem to have been building the new one for ages. The new bridge wasn't a statement, it was a necessity, and it had to play by certain rules. It had to be cost-efficient. You don't splurge on suspension because it looks like royal icing on your bridge cake, you use suspension because you need suspension. Considering the clay problem, the bridge also had to be wider, yet lighter, than its predecessor. And thanks to the relatively recent wonders of concrete, it would be 40 feet wider, but it would be 55,000 tons where the old bridge was 130,000. The biggest challenge, and the most talked about aspect of its construction? Here's Ferguson again. Its principal claim to engineering significance is in the method of assembly, an operation severely restricted by the need to keep two road lanes and footpaths above and 200-foot-wide sea lanes below constantly open. When the bridge did open later in the year, J.H. Stevens of the Times called it an exercise in the art of the practical. The bustle of traffic on and beneath London Bridge is continuous. It had to stay that way and could not be stopped throughout the construction of the new bridge, except for limited closure of the road at night or the weekend. Thus design and construction could not be separated. Design and construction could not be separated. 
Essentially, that meant the need for London Bridge, the practical, able to facilitate the sheer crush of 2,500 vehicles and 22,000 pedestrians every hour without sinking into the Thames, that couldn't help but inform the future of London Bridge, the iconic. And so, arguments that the new bridge matched the legacy of London Bridge's past even with all those limitations, arguments like the one the Queen made earlier, they have the slightest hint of... Don't be so disappointed, guys. The Times The new London Bridge is a fine structure. It is not a record span, nor has it stretched the structural limits of bridge-building techniques, but it is nevertheless a notable bridge, built in the face of considerable difficulty by the use of apparently simple, yet ingenious, methods of construction. Only the Daily Telegraph seemed a bit disappointed. They used Tower Bridge to take some digs at London Bridge's simplicity. Although modernists may not necessarily agree, Tower Bridge is one of the most pleasing pieces of river architecture. It is considered, along with Big Ben, to be a feature which epitomizes London. In these days, when the purely functional is all-important, the bridges of London remind us of more leisurely times when design and taste were equally important. But outside of the Daily Telegraph, the bridge came in for plenty of praise. The Mercury called the new bridge the Pride of London. Its beauty, grace, and simplicity blend perfectly with the famous river it straddles. The Times called it a graceful successor to a proud symbol of the city. It has architectural grace and style. It is rather difficult to build an ugly bridge in pre-stressed concrete, and one expects a soaring lightness of touch from this material. (laughs) Which is definitely a candidate for most 1970s sentence ever. But you know what? In profile, it can be quite a striking bridge, especially at night when it's all lit up. The slopes of its three wide arches undulate so imperceptibly that it's downright calming. But walking across London Bridge is... it's nothing to write home about. If you'd walked across the same spot, well actually just a bit downriver, Any time between 1209 and 1757, you would have had a radically different experience. You would have definitely wanted to write home about the medieval London Bridge. You might have begun drafting the letter soon after your approach to the Southern Gate. Dear Mom and Dad, Thanks for funding this trip back to 1577. Best gap year trip ever! It's been incredible. I've been keeping a low profile so people don't think I'm a witch, just like you said. But walking across London Bridge, I just want to shout, How did you guys do this? at the top of my lungs. You barely even know you're on a bridge. There's basically a whole city on here. The whole time you're surrounded by shops and taverns and people's houses. You know in Game of Thrones, the long bridge in Volantis where Tyrion and Varys see Red Priestess? It's that. That happened. Up ahead, they're building a house that's... It seems impossible. It's four stories and juts way over the bridge and out onto the supports on both sides. And they're painting it with ridiculous colors. And get this, it's made entirely of wood. And I mean entirely, as in no nails, just wood pegs, holding it together. Like they built the whole thing in the Netherlands and then shipped it over here to be assembled. Like giant Ikea! If you're thinking, come on, no such house could possibly exist, You've pretty much got it. It'll be called Nonsuch House. 
They're building it where Drawbridge used to be. The drawbridge was falling apart because, in the Elizabethan era, everyone feels pretty secure about things. Which is weird, because it hasn't been that long, barely a hundred years, since Jack Cade led a rebel army right through here and took the city. But he didn't think to hold on to the bridge, and he needed it. He ended up having to surrender after failing to take back the bridge. He's still here, well, part of him is. I passed under his head not too long ago. And William Wallace from Braveheart, they actually just moved the heads from the drawbridge gate to the southern gate, so now everyone who comes from the south is reminded first thing, don't even think about it. Don't worry, I'll be careful. Love you. That's a pretty good letter. I just hope you'll be able to remember all that. You'll probably be trying to cross the bridge for another 40 minutes or so. London Bridge was 906 feet long, and it usually took about an hour to cross, by cart, horse, or foot. You can walk across London Bridge today in about four minutes. So why did people only shuffle about 15 feet every minute when they were crossing medieval London Bridge? Well, for much of its existence, the houses on either side of the bridge made the road between them about 12 to 15 feet wide, and that's both ways of traffic. Some measures were taken to alleviate this, and in 1685 the road was widened to a whopping 20 feet. And in 1722, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, Sir Gerard Conyers, actually made a decree to try to get things moving. All carts, coaches, and other carriages coming out of Suffolk into this city do keep all along the west side of the said bridge. And all carts and coaches and the carriages going out of this city so keep along the east side of said bridge. And that actually set a precedent that exists to this day on British roadways. Keep to the left. None of this did much. After one 1749 performance of Handel's music for the Royal Fireworks, traffic was blocked for three hours. 906 feet. While this was happening, the Westminster Bridge was being built upriver. That's the bridge between Big Ben and the London Eye today. This was the first time in known history that London Bridge wouldn't be the only bridge crossing the Thames in London. And so seeing this gleaming new bridge being built without any crumbling buildings on it, the people of London decided, Oh, God, enough. So from 1757 to 1762... George Dance and Roger Taylor, they used what they had to make a working bridge. The bridge was pushed further out on each side of its starlings, its foundations, more on those in a bit. And London Bridge's most iconic features were finally removed. The buildings were demolished. So now there's 33 feet of space up there, and the only thing that's up there with commuters are some new street lights, some balustrades, and 14 round alcoves that look a bit like small band shells. You can actually visit three of those alcoves today. Two of them are in Victoria Park, and one of them... There's a little sign here, the London Bridge niche, purchased by Guy's Hospital for 10 guineas and installed in 1861. So I'm in the literal shadow of the shard right now. Looking up at it takes effort. It takes a lot of effort. I'm in the courtyard of Guy's Hospital, and we actually have here an alcove from the medieval bridge. And on it is seated the poet John Keats. It's just about 10 minutes south of 
London Bridge, probably less than that, walking. The real Mecca, if you're looking for a piece of medieval London Bridge, is just a bit north of the current bridge. Actually, St. Magnus the Martyr, one of the many churches rebuilt by Christopher Wren after the Great Fire of 1666, marks the point where the medieval bridge started. So just walking by the church gives you a good idea both of how far the current bridge is from the old one and of how far embankments have moved the Thames shoreline from where it used to be. A little anecdote to illustrate what a genius Christopher Wren was. At the time he was rebuilding the church, its tower was even with the next building over, the first building on the bridge, so you didn't even know you were walking onto London Bridge when you did so. But when the bridge was widened and the buildings were demolished in 1757, that wasn't going to work anymore. Dance and Taylor had to figure out some way to make it so people wouldn't have to walk around the steeple of St. Magnus, which was now jutting out into their new roadway. Well, it turns out that Wren, who had been deceased for half a century by this point, had already beaten them to it. Anticipating exactly this problem, Dude had built the St. Magnus Tower with arches on the north and south end and had them filled in so they weren't visible. So, to the builder's surprise, all they had to do was punch out the filling and a pedestrian walkway under St. Magnus Steeple was born. And that arch is still there at St. Magnus today. There are stones from the medieval bridge out in the St. Magnus churchyard and inside the church, there's a small model. Actually, it's a, it's a pretty big model. This model is your best chance to see two things. One, why the bridge was built in the first place, and two, why after more than 600 years, even widened, even with no buildings on it, it just had to go. The model shows a bridge with 19 piers or arches, and all of them are sitting on starlings. Some of them are bigger than others, and starlings are these football-looking things made of posts driven deep into the riverbed. And what they're doing is they're sitting around the actual bridge foundations, protecting them from tides, ice, erosion, all that bad stuff. Now, one of these starlings halfway down is especially huge, and on one side of it sits a grand chapel. This chapel is the reason the most famous London Bridge was built in the first place. Peter de Colchurch, so named because he was the priest of St. Mary Colchurch through the last half of the 12th century, was incredible. He doesn't even have his own Wikipedia page, and he deserves one. So it's 1163, and Peter happens to find himself in charge of rebuilding London Bridge. Now, we're not sure exactly how long wood bridges were used at this spot, but by the time Peter had to rebuild another one, it had probably been about a thousand years since the height of Roman Londinium. Why here? Well, this was the perfect spot to build bridges and to cross the river when bridges weren't around. The land jutted out in such a way that it didn't require building embankments. But even then, these bridges were far from perfect. They had a habit of washing away. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, a flood did the deed in 1097, and William the Conqueror, as dedicated as he was to shoring up his power with the Tower of London and Westminster Hall and by all accounts, he was obsessed. He pulled his builders off of those jobs to rebuild this bridge. The bridge was very important. But between shore erosion and shoddy work, the bridge needed another overhaul in 1163, and Peter did the job. 
Now, around this time, another prominent member of the church was becoming a thorn in King Henry II's side. Thomas Becket was the new Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest church position in all of England. And he was not someone Henry liked working with. Henry wanted to strengthen the monarchy and lessen ties with Rome. And Thomas was having none of that. When it came to signing Henry's Constitution of Clarendon, Thomas was the sole holdout. Because of this, he spent the next six years in exile. After the Pope interceded, Thomas was welcomed back, but it wasn't long before Henry, fed up, said something, his exact words are lost to time, but something to the effect of, how can you all keep letting this guy do this to your king? Well, the six years following that 1170 offhand comment would be insane. First, four knights decided they would no longer let someone keep doing this to their king, and they confronted Thomas at Canterbury, and it wasn't long before swords were retrieved. According to Edward Grimm, who was there, At the third blow, he fell on his knees and elbows, offering himself a living sacrifice and saying in a low voice, for the name of Jesus, on the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death. But the third knight inflicted a terrible wound as he lay prostrate. By this stroke, the crown of his head was separated from the head in such a way that the blood, white with the brain and the brain no less red from the blood, dyed the floor of the cathedral. The same clerk who had entered with the knights placed his foot on the neck of the only priest and precious martyr, and, horrible to relate, scattered the brains and blood about the pavements, crying to the others, Let us away, knights! This fellow will arise no more! You can see how this sort of death might have engendered a lot of sympathy in the people, and people of all walks of life. If the Archbishop of Canterbury sounds familiar, it's because all the pilgrims in Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales are visiting sites related to Thomas Becket. He was a big deal for a long time. Barely two years after his death, St. Thomas the Martyr was already canonized. For some contrast, it took almost two decades for Mother Teresa. This was a quick turnaround. And among the worshippers was a very guilty Henry II himself, penitent about his accidental mob hit. And for the record... Henry is coming off a really rough three years. His entire family, sons and wife, as well as most of the world surrounding him from France to Scotland, had spent the past year trying to wrest his crown from him. And this is the moment that Peter de Colchurch, who knew firsthand what a pain in the neck wood bridges were to rebuild, approached his king. Hey king, yes Peter, you know what we should do? We should build a chapel dedicated to St. Thomas. Pilgrims will come from everywhere. Done. Where? Oh, no biggie. Just a massive stone bridge we're going to build across the Thames. What? Yes, stone bridges are all the rage. The French have built a bunch of them recently. And the pilgrims will go absolutely gaga for it. Fine. Anything for St. Thomas, yes. Uh, well, I suppose, yes, we'll use the wool tax. And what if that's not enough, Your Majesty? Oh, I'm... I guess build some houses on it and charge rent. So that's how Peter de Colechurch's idea for a stone London bridge was born. 
And within Peter's grand idea lay the seed for its ultimate demise in 1831. Peter was a big thinker. Looking at the model in St. Magnus, you can see how incredible a 19-arch bridge looks. In contrast with the 5-arch 1800s bridge and the modern 3-archer, it's beautifully cluttered. It took a heck of a long time to build, too. 33 years, by which time both Henry and Peter were dead. But Peter lived until a few years before its completion, so I'm sure he got to see enough of it done to be really proud before he was laid to rest in the chapel to St. Thomas that he built. But you might wonder, looking at the model, how all that Thames water passing through London got through all those tightly packed starlings, which only got bigger and bigger as they were repaired year after year. And the answer was... Not well. Water did not get through very well at all. This led to three obvious problems. One, London Bridge effectively became a very porous dam, and it created river rapids where a once calm river had flowed. Trying to go under London Bridge by boat was known as shooting the bridge. Many people died trying it, and many more died inadvertently getting sucked into trying it. A famous saying was born, London Bridge was made for wise men to go over and fools to go under. By 1769, only seven years after its big refurbishment, Henry Chamberlain was fed up with London Bridge. The wretched disproportion of the arches, and the great fall in the water, by which many of his majesty's subjects have been annually lost, is a disgrace to the city. And we hope the time is advancing when a sense of the dangers and inconveniences will inspire those in whose power it was to apply for the aid of Parliament towards erecting a superb and magnificent structure which may do equal honour to the taste, policy, and humanity of the present age. The second issue. Just imagine for a second, because you don't want to imagine it for much longer than that, what good disturbing the natural flow of the river was doing for industrial London's pollution problem. I'll just leave it there. (laughs) Issue number three. By the 1600s, the starlings had become so unwieldy and large that every few years or so, the collected water upstream, which was slowed down, would freeze. For the whole winter. Which was a lot of fun! Essentially, the people of London would set up a carnival city on the Thames. A frost fair. A great street from the Temple to Suffolk was built with shops and all manner of things sold. Here, coaches plied as in the streets. There were also shows, bull baiting, and a great many other shows and tricks to be seen. John Evelyn, in 1676, admired the printing presses where the people and ladies took a fancy to have their names printed, and the day and year set down when printed on the Thames. One set of satisfied customers? Charles, King, James, Duke, Catherine, Queen, Mary, Duchess, and Princess, George, Prince, Hans in Kelder, London, Printed by G. Croom on the ice on the River Thames, January 31st, 1684. Who is Hans in Keldar? It meant Jack in Cellar, that's Charles II being customarily cheeky about Princess Anne's pregnancy. 
If this sounds charming, it probably was. By all accounts, the last Frost Fair in 1814 was quite an affair. It also damaged the bridge. All of these Frost Fairs did. Ice and starlings do not get along. This was the last straw. People had been seriously proposing new London bridges as early as 1800. Ralph Dodd submitted a proposal for a very tall, 100-foot-high bridge with six arches, three on each side, of a massive 300-foot arch. Thomas Telford had proposed a 600-foot single-arch cast-iron bridge, and George Dance the Younger had proposed two separate bridges, each with a drawbridge at the center. Ultimately, when things got serious, it was John Rennie's five-arch stone design that won. Now, he would die soon after getting the news, but his sons would carry out his vision. The younger John Rennie even would be knighted for his service. In 1831, King William IV and Queen Adelaide opened the new bridge with a 1,500-guest banquet on the bridge. There were 300 turtles, 370 chicken dishes, 40 sirloins of beef, 50 quarters of lamb, and hundreds of pies. The air was jubilant as a new London bridge replaced its almost demolished brother just a bit downriver. Samuel Smiles was not sad to see the old beast go. It was an unsightly mass of masonry, so far as the bridge was concerned, although the overhanging buildings extending along both sides of the roadway, the chapel on the center pier, and the adjoining drawbridge served to give it an exceedingly picturesque appearance. The piers of the bridge were so close and the arches so low that at high water they resembled a low series of culverts hardly deserving the name of arches. But one reporter took a moment to look back. He noted wistfully that day, In the midst of the gay show, I looked down at the old deserted half-demolished bridge, the silent remembrance of seven centuries. As was pointed out previously, the less spectacular but still prestigious Rennie London Bridge served commendably until people noticed it was a bit too heavy and it was sinking which necessitated its replacement. Hold up, you're probably thinking, before you move on to something else. Didn't you say that this bridge ended up in Arizona? Yeah, and you can go visit it in Lake Havasu, Arizona right now, where it sits surrounded by palm trees. Well, some of it. Only the granite facings, less than 10% of those 133,000 tons, ended up crossing the Atlantic. The buyer? Robert McCullough, an American oil magnate who had bought a massive tract of Arizona desert and wanted a way to draw people to his new desert community. You can imagine how this almost comical contrast between old London and shiny American frontier might have led to one of the most enduring stories about London Bridge, probably right behind the story about how it fell down. Adam Ferguson again, having a laugh with City of London engineer Harold Knox. There was an engaging story going about in Britain as well as in the United States that the American buyers of the bridge all the time thought they were getting Tower Bridge for their money, that best-known shape of tourists' London. Mr. King dismisses it with amusement, producing a photograph of the purchasers standing in obvious delight on the bridge they were buying. They were quite shrewd enough, he explains, to encourage a story as good as that. And thank goodness for that. Everyone wins. According to the Times, by 1972, McCullough had already won. 
There have been nasty suggestions that the Americans thought they were getting either Old London Bridge, complete with none such house, or Tower Bridge. However, the addition to the scenery has raised the price of land so much at Havasu City that it is said the company already shows a profit on the purchase. And we win too, because the story, apocryphal or not, makes us feel okay about that little pang of disappointment we feel when we walk out onto London Bridge today, and that pang of envy we feel when we look east at Tower Bridge. It's out there in the ether. Those feelings don't just belong to you. They are part of the folklore of London Bridge. But before you go and get too disappointed, keep in mind this little gem from Franklin Roosevelt. There can be little doubt that in many ways the story of bridge building is the story of civilization. By it, we can measure an important part of people's progress. Now, that may sound initially like an argument for preserving the great bridges of yesteryear, encasing great leaps forward in amber for everyone to see forevermore. But if there's one thing we've learned today, it's that icons can actually impede progress, and they can be a real pain in the ass to maintain. The very things that make them iconic, all those buildings, all those arches, can also make them essentially useless. Now, many of our greatest icons actually have no practical purpose. They exist only to inspire awe. But a bridge can't do that. It has a day job. The current London Bridge may not look stunning, but it does its job. As in 1973, probably nothing makes the people of London happier than the fact that London Bridge is wide and efficient and constant. Actually, if Fergie was looking to gyrate in the face of British austerity, she probably could have done a lot worse than London Bridge. Now, compare that with the more iconic bridges that surround London Bridge today. Tower Bridge, which has probably outlived its usefulness, but will stick around for a long, long time now that we live in an age of photographs and video, it's currently closed to vehicular traffic for regular maintenance. That scene in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince where Millennium Bridge is torn apart by Death Eaters, that played on very real, very recent fears for Londoners. The bridge with its creative design had to be closed down after opening because it swayed too much. More than anything else, a bridge, even London Bridge, has one job. To not fall down. As Queen Elizabeth II mused on opening day 1973, I have seen it from the best vantage point, the water. I am glad to say it shows no sign of falling down. Far from it, it is clearly here to stay, and combines functional quality with the most elegant design. <laughs> Even the Queen can't resist a little nursery rhyme indulgence. So, is the most iconic thing about London Bridge the song it inspired? Well, since no one really knows what they're singing about when they sing London Bridge is Falling Down, they don't have a picture of any particular bridge, how could they, or why it's falling, I'd argue that's sort of a technicality. Like the current bridge, the song just happens to share the extremely valuable cachet of that name, London Bridge, with some historical bridges. If anything, the name London Bridge might be the most iconic thing about London Bridge. So which bridge is the subject of the song? 
Well, there's some debate over that. Some believe the song is talking about the winter of 1281, which was only a little less than 70 years after Peter's Bridge opened when Queen Eleanor of Provence, married to Henry III, had so badly mismanaged the bridge's finances that five arches of the bridge just collapsed. Which makes her the fair lady. (laughs) Side note, she didn't get to manage the finances anymore after that. The more popular candidate actually takes us to Norway, where poet Ottar Swart wrote, London Bridge is broken down. Gold is won, and bright renown. Shield resounding, war horn sounding, Hilda shouting in the din. Arrows singing, mail coats ringing, Odin makes our Olaf win. That bit of pep commemorates the 11th century campaign of the Viking Olaf Haraldsson, who pulled down one of the many wooden London bridges. He did this by first going a bit of a ways from London and tearing people's huts apart and then covering his ships with these ad hoc canopies to protect him from arrows and such. And then he went back to London Bridge and he tied ropes around the bridge and his ships. And then he had his men row really, really hard. And London Bridge fell down. This sounds like pretty typical Viking behavior, coming in, destroying, pillaging from the poor Saxons. But there are two fun twists to this story. One is that Olaf was actually a mercenary hired by the recently deposed Saxon king, Ethelred the Unready, who had been forced into exile after losing to another band of Vikings. Now, these Vikings were led by the awesomely named Svein Forkbeard, and Svein's son, Canute, was in charge now. So, one Saxon was paying a Viking to tear down his bridge, while other Saxons were taking up arms in defense of the Viking Canute, who was in charge of them. This was some Viking-on-Viking crime, and some Saxon-on-Saxon crime. (laughs) The other twist is, that Viking became a saint. Saint Olaf, who still has some churches in his name near the river he attacked. You know, this is why I love the area around London Bridge. There are all these incredible stories centered around a stretch of the Thames that has been a crucial point of crossing, commerce, ceremony, and conflict for centuries. There's the story of the joust on the bridge. It's 23rd April 1390. A Scottish knight and the English ambassador to Scotland got in a spat over which domain was more valorous. So King Richard II gets to see a joust on the bridge. The Scotsman wins, and he's a total gentleman about it too. I hope the head of William Wallace, already on the bridge at that point, was very proud. And then there's the incredible story of the wealthy 10th century ferryman John Overy, who was so miserly, he thought... Hey, I'll pretend to be dead. Everyone in the family will mourn for me and save me a day's food during the fasting. But then, what's that he hears? Wait a minute. All of the servants are overjoyed. That's not right. Let me just get right up off of my deathbed and I'll give them a piece of my... That sound was John being smashed upside the head with an oar by a servant who was like, "Uh Uh-uh, no dead people rising today. Is that story true? Meh. (laughs) But regardless of how John died, his daughter Mary made good with his fortune, founding a convent and even potentially funding one of those many wooden London bridges. 
And that convent? It ended up becoming today's Suffolk Cathedral, London Bridge's dignified neighbor. Between old alcoves and magnificent churches, there's plenty to do if you want to soak in the essence of iconic London Bridge. There's the giant spike on the southern end of London Bridge that stands where heads once perched on pikes. I remember the, there was a spiky point that we walked by, just sort of leaning towards the shard. That commemorates... Oh yeah, it's right there. You can actually see it. We're under the north side of the bridge right now and looking towards the south. We can see just basically this giant spike. That commemorates the point where the south gate of the medieval bridge was. And that's where they would put the And heck, right you can even pay a visit to that other bridge, the one that Fergie and Robert McCullough thought was London Bridge, even though, of course, they didn't. Oh, snap! Oh, snap! And, hey, if you're considering crossing the current version of London Bridge too, take solace in knowing this. It won't take you a whole hour to do it. So, why not give it a go? Thanks for listening, you guys. This is exciting. I love walking around London looking for historical treasures, and I hope you've enjoyed hearing some of what I've found. Iconography is written, produced, and edited by Charles Gustine, and that's me. Thanks to Carolyn for helping me out with recording the episode and for being my foundation. And I know she won't sink an eighth of an inch per year into the clay either. Also, big thanks to the Suffolk Historical Archive and the John Harvard Library. Pretty much all my research and all my quotes come from their invaluable stock of books, clippings, and photos. And if you're wondering what this Suffolk I keep speaking of is, it's Southwark, which is how I pronounced it for many weeks after arriving here. Since my goal with this podcast is to use interesting icons to triangulate the essence of a place, or at least how we publicly perceive it, I'll spend a bit of time talking about British icons while I'm over here. I do have plans in the future to move to other cities and other cultures, probably in a season-by-season format. If you have any suggestions for juicy icons, hit me up on Twitter at C-H-A-R-L-E-S-G-U-S-T-I-N-E. You can also drop by our Facebook page, facebook.com slash iconographypodcast, or our website, iconographypodcast.com. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a rating. It helps get the word out and it helps me to know what you liked and what you didn't. Next time, while the American flag becomes an increasingly contentious icon, kneeling before it now means disrespecting veterans to many and this recent election shows a good number don't believe it should apply to as many people as would like to pledge allegiance to it, I've been struck by a seemingly simple icon that is everywhere over here. One that just stands for ex-servicemen and their service. And nothing else. The Remembrance Poppy.